Our text this morning is found in Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 10. The Lord said to Moses, Cut two tables of stone like the first, and I will write upon the tables the words that were on the first tables which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds feed before that mountain. So Moses cut two tables of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tables of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses made haste to bow his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in thy sight, O Lord, let the Lord, I pray thee, go in the midst of us, although it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thy inheritance. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been wrought in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with you. One of my deep desires for our church is that we become a people who understands the law of God and fulfills it in a spirit of love. The law that God gave through Moses at Mount Sinai about three months after the departure from Egypt has been the victim of some very bad press over the past several hundred years. And my guess is that a good deal of confusion exists in our mind when we read in the New Testament on the one hand, You are not under law, but under grace. And on the other hand, a few chapters earlier in Romans, do we then abolish the law by faith? No, we uphold the law. One of the reasons for this difficulty of understanding how all these texts on the law fit together in the New Testament is that The word law is used in at least three different ways in the New Testament. One of the ways is it refers to the Old Testament in its entirety sometimes. For example, in Romans 3.19, where it refers back up to quotes from the prophets and quotes from the Psalms, as well as from Moses. A second meaning is sometimes it refers just to part of the Old Testament, as when Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. 
specifically, it refers very often to those first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, or as the Jews call them, the Torah, the books of Moses, as in Luke 24:44, where Jesus says, These are my words which I spoke to you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms might be fulfilled. Those are the three distinctions made in the Hebrew Old Testament canon. But the third meaning that the word law has in the New Testament is not another part of the book, but the book viewed from a different angle. We're going to see in a few minutes that many in Israel distorted the Old Testament law into legalism, which it was never intended to be. That means that they took it and they severed it from its foundation in faith. They did not emphasize reliance on the Holy Spirit in the fulfillment of it. And third, they turned it into a job description by which we earn the wages of salvation. That's what legalism is. But there's no word in Greek for legalism. And therefore, what Paul did when he wanted to refer to this distortion of the Mosaic law was to sometimes use the phrase works of the law. But sometimes he used just the little word law. As, for example, in Romans 6.14, when he said, you are not under law, but under grace. We're going to see in a moment that does not mean you don't have to obey the law. What it means is you are no longer burdened by the law as a job description by which you have to work and earn the wages of God's blessing. So, every time we read the New Testament, we must ask ourselves, is this word law referring to the Old Testament? Is it referring to the books of Moses? Or is it referring to the legalistic distortion of Moses' teachings, which it does sometimes? Now, what I want to do this morning is try to vindicate Moses from the widespread accusation that he taught in the Torah, in the first five books of the Old Testament, that he taught a different way of salvation than the gospel teaches and under which we live. Namely, by grace, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, it's clear that hardly anyone says people were saved in the Old Testament differently than they were saved in the New Testament. Nobody says that. But many people say Moses offered in the law a different way of salvation, namely through works. Or to put it a different way, virtually everybody agrees that anybody in the Old Testament that was justified was justified by grace through faith not of works. But those very same people will often say that the law called men to be justified by works, thus showing their total inability, thus driving them to the Savior. Or to put it a third way, many Bible teachers will argue that the Mosaic Covenant made at Mount Sinai with the people of Israel is fundamentally different from the Abrahamic covenant made earlier 
And the new covenant made at Calvary under which we live. And the difference, they say, is this. The Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant offer salvation freely by free promises to be received by faith alone, apart from works of the law. But under the Mosaic covenant, salvation or God's blessings are offered not freely to faith, but to those who can earn them or merit them through the works of the law. And since, of course, only perfect works could merit salvation from a perfectly holy God, and nobody can do that, therefore all the law does is damn and point to us that we are miserable sinners and done for and thus lead us to where salvation can be found, namely in the gospel. My guess is that's the most popular notion of the law in the church in America today, and it is wrong, very, very wrong. It turns Moses into a legalistic Pharisee. It turns the Torah into the very heresy that Paul condemned at Galatia. And worst of all, it makes God his own worst enemy, commanding that men try to merit their salvation and thus exalt themselves rather than resting wholly in his sovereign mercy and thus exalting him. And so what I want to try to do this morning is vindicate Moses from this bad press and this terrible misunderstanding which is so prevalent in the evangelical church today. And it is a huge topic, but sometimes when we try to boil a huge topic down into a little nut-sized shell, we can take that and plant it in some little corner of our mind and eventually it grows up into a big tree of insight. And so that's my hope of what will happen as I try to boil a theology of the law down into five points this morning in the next 20 minutes or so. I'll mention the five points, then I'll go back and give you their biblical basis, and then I'll sum them up again. Point number one, the law is fulfilled in us when we love our neighbor. Point number two, love is an outworking of genuine saving faith. Point number three, therefore, the law which aims at love teaches faith, not works. Point number four, therefore, we should obey the commandments of the law just like we obey the commandments of the New Testament, namely, not in order to win God's favor, but because we already depend on his free grace and trust that his commands lead into true, lasting, and full joy. And then fifth, therefore we should, as the psalmist does, delight in the Lord, meditate on it day and night, and sing its praises unto all generations. That's my theology of the law. Now, here's the biblical basis where I get all that. Point number one, the law is fulfilled when we love our neighbor as ourselves. The key text is Romans 13, verses 8 to 10, where Paul says this, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The commandments 
You shall not commit adultery. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this one sentence. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfilling of the law. Now, Paul was not taking a big risk when he boiled the whole Old Testament down into one sentence because Jesus had already done it. You remember he said, whatever you wish that men would do to you, do so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So simple. And James said it a different way in chapter 2, verse 8. He said, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. So we have three testimonies in the New Testament. Jesus, Paul, and James, all to the effect that the law had one thing to teach, love your neighbor. And if you love your neighbor, you have fulfilled the whole law. Every single commandment, according to Romans 13, 9, has that as its aim. So point one in my little nutshell theology of the law is if you love your neighbor as yourself, you've done all you need to do. Point number two, love is not a work that we produce on our own in order to merit God's blessing. It is, as Paul teaches, a fruit of faith. Love is an outgrowth of faith in the heart. Now, to be sure, love results in issues in labor. Labor of love, 1 Thessalonians. But it's deeper than, more than labor. It enables labor. There are many people laboring for men and for God who do not do it out of love. Love is different than religious exercises and spiritual or humanitarian services. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, if I give away all I have to feed the poor and even give my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. Now, surely somebody's going to respond and say, well, if you can give away everything you have and give your own life and not love, what then in the world is love? And the answer is, it's not in the world. First John 4, 7 says, love is from God. And therefore, the only people who can genuinely love the way God wants love is those whose hearts are united to God through faith. Love is an outworking of faith. This is the key text, Galatians 5, 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. Faith is energized into acts of love. And then just a little bit farther down in chapter 5, the familiar text Love is a fruit of the Spirit. Now, that means it's not something we can produce on our own unaided efforts. It takes the Holy Spirit in us, enabling us to love. So what can we do? How do we become loving people? Paul gives the answer back in a previous chapter of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 5, where he says, 
the one who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer, of course, is he supplies the Spirit and works miracles in us through hearing with faith. So the answer to the question, how do we become loving people through faith, is when we hear the word of the Lord, believe it. The Holy Spirit comes on the path of faith into the heart, bears the fruit of love, so that love is a fruit of the Spirit and it is the outworking of faith. Here's the way Paul put it in 1 Timothy 1.5. The aim of our charge, Timothy, is love that issues from a good conscience and a clean heart and sincere faith. Genuine faith issues in love. Now, I want to try to illustrate the dynamic of that transaction between faith and love with our situation in which we find ourselves here at Bethlehem. By the end of January, we will have probably made three very important decisions. We must decide whether, on the one hand, to buy that house next door for future expansion and parking or not. We have to decide whether to amend the church covenant so as not to make total abstinence a barrier to church membership or not. And we have to decide whether we are going to call a full-time assistant pastor for educational and young adult ministries and a children's worker next September 1982. I want to see all those things happen. But I know that there are you who disagree with one of those or two of those, and some of you are opposed to all three of those. So the question that lies before us is, what will love look like in the next three months as the two parties interact with one another? in the church. That's the key question for us, isn't it? Not whether the vote goes one way or the other on any three of those decisions. What is love going to look like? Here's what it's going to look like. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not seek to avoid a brother who differs. It does not wear a scowl. It does not spread rumors or speak evil behind anyone's back. It does not close its ears to the evidences. Love rejoices in the truth. It is peaceable, gentle, open to reason. It looks people right in the eye and wills their good. It does not become pouting or self-pitying, and it does not use ultimatums to get its own way. That's what love is going to look like in the next few months here at Bethlehem. And I want to stress that this is a terrific opportunity for us to demonstrate to ourselves and to the world that our harmony and our peace are not a worldly and a fleshly harmony and peace that are simply based on sameness. It requires no Christian grace whatsoever 
to maintain harmony where everybody thinks and feels the same. None at all. And therefore, this time of controversy is good for us. I praise the Lord for it. I do not bemoan it. I do not wring my hands and say, oh, that this weren't happening at our church. It is good for us. Because when we come through it, we will look back and say, yes, our peace, our harmony is of God. It is not based on pure homogeneity or sameness. It is of the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It is a time of testing. Is there grace within us? Or is there not? And I believe there is. Now, I'm really most interested in how I can love those who disagree with me. That's my battle, right? You got your battle. When I list the the demands of love in front of me, like I just did, you know what I have to do? I have to betake myself to some promises. And I'll tell you the three that I've been holding on to these days to try to make myself a loving person. First, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This church is going to be built and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Two, Piper, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never forget it, John. And then third, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and return not thither, but water the ground, making it sprout and bring forth, giving seed to the sower and food to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose it and prosper in that for which I sent it. What a great thing for a preacher to lay hold on and rest. When I look to the promises of God, my heart is still. And I am freed to love even those who disagree with me most strongly. I don't feel threatened anymore. I don't feel angry. I don't feel anxious about the future. My future is taken care of by the promises of God. And when He's taking care of my future, you know what my disposition is? To take care of yours as best I can. And I think that's love. And that's what I pray is going to happen to us in these next three months. And the point I'm illustrating is simply this. To the degree that we can love one another in this time of controversy, you know it's going to be owing to? It's going to be owing to our belief, our faith in the promises of God that liberate us from the things that cause ill will. So the first point was love fulfills the law. The second point was love is a fruit or an outworking of faith. And now the third point in this little nutshell theology of the law is that therefore the law did not teach that we should try to merit our salvation through works, but it taught that we should perform the obedience of faith. If love is what the law aimed at. And love can only be performed by faith. The law must have taught faith or it was deceptive. This is what has been overlooked so often in the church as we think about the law. It has been played off against faith rather than 
as a source of faith. Now, the key passage here is Romans 9, verses 30 to 32. In these verses, Paul is trying to answer the question, why Israel, having struggled so long to be a fulfiller of the law, failed? And here's his answer. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, the righteousness through faith, but that Israel pursued the law of righteousness but did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it through faith, but as if it were through works. You hear what the implication of that little phrase, as if? It never was intended to be pursued through works. Never. It was not God's intention in giving the law that the Israelites should be taught to try to merit their salvation through works. The law was intended from the very beginning to be obeyed through faith, and faith was the foundation of the law. It was based on trust in the God of the Exodus. The mistake of Israel was not that they tried to obey the law, but that they tried to obey it through works instead of trying to obey it through faith. Now let's look at the law itself. Although there are two other texts I just feel like I've got to mention. The one is in Romans 3.31 that says, do we abolish the law or abrogate the law through faith? God forbid, we establish the law through faith. And the other one comes from Matthew 23, 23, where Jesus points his finger at the Pharisees and says, you neglect the weightier matters of the law, namely, justice, mercy, and what? Faith. Those are the weighty matters of the law. Now, let's look at the law itself to see whether Jesus and Paul are really tracking with what Moses intended. The Ten Commandments are the very essence of the Mosaic Covenant, right? Exodus 20. That's the heart of the law. Now, the Ten Commandments were given about three months after the Exodus. So picture in your mind how vivid, how vivid in the imagination of those Israelites were the years of slavery and whipping and making bricks without straw, and babies being killed by the Pharaoh. It was a concentration camp. And then picture how vivid must be the dividing of the Red Sea and the deliverance and how glorious God must have appeared to them at that time. It might help to say, how vivid was the concentration camp in the minds of the Jews three months after the Allied liberation? It was vivid. Okay? Now, God's intention in dividing the Red Sea, was to prove to the people that he was trustworthy, that he would take care of them and they should bank on his promises. And this is the response that they give in Exodus 14:31. And Israel saw the great work which the Lord did against the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord. In other words, the Exodus was intended and it achieved faith in the people of Israel. Now they are to be a people who trusts him. That he'll take care of them. All right? The Ten Commandments then, three months later, begin like this. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Have no other gods before me. Now, doesn't that simply mean, have I not earned your trust? Have I not won your commitment? 
Am I not worthy above all other gods to be counted on to take care of you? Don't seek help from anybody else. The law was based on faith in the God of the Exodus, just like our obedience is based on faith in the God of Easter and Good Friday. The Ten Commandments are like the commandments of the New Testament. The Exodus was a sign for Israel. A sign that just as God had taken care of them powerfully and in love in the past, so he would take care of them powerfully and in love in the future. This is made really clear in Deuteronomy 1, 29 to 32. Here Moses is standing at the Jordan. Going to have another crossing in just a few days. He looks back, however, 40 years to when Israel moved up against the promised land And they wouldn't go in. And he recalls why they should have and why they didn't. And he says, don't you remember that I said, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord, your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you just as he did in Egypt before your eyes. Yet, he concludes 40 years later, in spite of this word, you did not Believe the Lord. The Exodus didn't win your faith in the long run. And therefore you didn't obey. Obedience is based on faith, is based on the mighty deeds of God in the Exodus. And that's the thing we need to understand about the law. When our future is taken care of by the God of the Exodus when we know that he will do powerfully for us tomorrow what he did yesterday, we won't steal. We won't commit adultery. We won't lie and bear false witness. We won't dishonor our mother and father. We'll keep the Sabbath and not feel like we have to be a workaholic seven days a week to make a bright future. If God is in control and he's the God of the Exodus and he loves us, The Ten Commandments are the most natural thing in the world. All the law does is describe the way the Israelites are going to live if they believe their future is taken care of by the God of the Exodus. It is not a job description to teach us how to earn our way to heaven. It is a description of how to obey through faith. So, the first point in our theology is that the law is fulfilled by loving our neighbor. The second point is that love is an outworking of saving faith in the God of the Exodus and the God of Easter. And the third point is that, therefore, we must obey the commands of the Old Testament, just like we can obey the commands of the new, namely, not in order to earn God's favor, but because we already rely on his favor and trust that his commands are leading into full and lasting joy. And now, the last point I want to make is that this comes from the New Testament, this necessity of obedience Romans 8, 3, and 4 teaches that the law is unable 
to produce that kind of obedience. It's weak through our flesh. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can enable us to respond to the law in faith. And that's why Paul says here that the Son died, made atonement for sin, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and as a result, the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul teaches that we are not to leave behind the law. We are not to forsake the law for something else. We are to fulfill the law in the power of the Holy Spirit through faith and not through works. So, in conclusion, these five things. The law is fulfilled when we love our neighbor as ourself. Love is an outworking, a necessary fruit of genuine saving faith. Therefore, the law taught not works, but faith and the obedience that follows from faith. And fourth, therefore, we should obey the law just like we obey the New Testament commandments with the same motive, namely, not to try to ingratiate ourselves with God by showing ourselves meritorious, but because he has already shown his grace to us and because his commands hold out tremendous promise of the most happy life. The Mosaic Covenant is not fundamentally different from the Abrahamic and the New Covenant because the requirements for salvation are the same in both and the obedience required is the same in both. And the fifth and crowning point to this little nutshell theology of the Old Testament is that therefore we should delight ourselves in the law, meditate on it day and night, and sing of its value and its glory.